CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Do we choose to follow the rules? Are we really free to decide, or is choice just an illusion? On this week's episode, we're trying to understand why many neuroscientists and philosophers argue that there is no such thing as free will. To help us debate the existence of free will, we're joined remotely by philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, cognitive neuroscientist Patrick Haggard, and author of A Metaphysics for Freedom, Helen Stewart. And you can keep looking back and saying, well, what's the causal chain here? But what you don't ever find is anything mystical or anything exceptional. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Mark Linsenmayer. Many neuroscientists and philosophers argue that there is no such thing as free will. Some even claim experiment has proven this to be the case. Yet the behavior of these same scientists and philosophers appear to assume their own freedom, say when formulating and promoting their own theory. To avoid this paradox, should we accept that free will is an illusion, and as a consequence, cease to praise our children when they do well and refrain from punishing murderers when they are caught? Or is the denial of free will a mistake driven by the desire to avoid a profound conflict with the scientific assumption that its laws alone govern the universe? We're going to start with a three-minute introduction uh, by each of the speakers. Let's start with Helen. Is the denial of free will a mistake? Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, So what I would want to say to begin with is that the answer to the question whether the denial of free will is a mistake is is the boring philosopher's one that it does depend what you mean by free will. I say that not just because I'm a philosopher, but because it is the right answer. Um, I think there are some conceptions of free will that are what I think of as sort of mad conceptions. A mad conception of free will, for example, would be the idea that you sort of have to make yourself um, from the ground up, from scratch, by choosing all your desires and your values and your principles, sort of out of nowhere. Um, I mean, that's obviously a conception of free will that that no one could satisfy. In fact, it leads to an infinite regress because it makes no sense to choose things like desires and values and principles, except by reference to some further desires, values and principles. And so you could re-raise the question and so on and so on. Uh, So not even God could have free will on that conception of free will. Um, So that's the first thing I want to say. There are mad conceptions. I don't want to be defending any of those. The question then remains, are there any conceptions of free will which which are worth defending um, but uh, but aren't mad in, in that sense? And I think the answer to that is yes. And that's what I'm going to be trying to argue this evening. 
The conception that I want to defend is a conception which is opposed to what I think of as a very bottom-up way of thinking about the human agent. What I mean by bottom-up is an idea of the human agent where the agent's doings, his or her actions, are entirely determined uh, by the mechanistic interactions of, say, a chemical or electrical kind, uh, of, of her small parts, you know, things like neurons, cells, uh, we could go even lower, talk about molecules and so on. Um, that reductive conception of the human being is one I want to insist we have absolutely no reason from science or anywhere else to endorse. And that's going to be my position this evening. Patrick, your opening statement, is the denial of free will a mistake? I think uh, from a scientific point of view, you might want to start with the phenomena. And for me, the phenomena that need to be explained are actions. So people make actions. I think we generally would agree with that. And these would be things like pressing a button or signing your name or even pulling a trigger. But the question then is, where do those actions come from? And my approach, coming both from neuroscience and from psychology, is what you might call reverse engineering of actions. So an action is the contraction of a muscle. Why does the muscle contract? It contracts because particular neurons in a brain area called the primary motor cortex fire. And then why do those neurons fire? Well, they fire because neurons in some brain areas just anterior, more frontally to the primary motor cortex, they fire. And you can keep looking back and saying, well, what, what's the causal chain here? But what you don't ever find is anything mystical or anything exceptional. And what's quite interesting, in fact, is that modern neuroscience doesn't now view the brain as a, a linear causal chain going back to some uh, imagined first cause, which uh, you, know, you might think of as free will. Rather, the brain works as a loop. So the real cause of the action that I make now is the combination of two driving forces. One is the brain's representation of the wide context in which I am. So the brain, human brain in particular, is able to integrate an enormous amount of information and bring it all to bear on uh, the action that I make now. So this perhaps explains the appearance of complexity behind human action. And the second really striking feature about human action is that the action that I make now depends on what you might call history, but I think I would prefer to call memory, the previous experience that I've had of making actions in the past. So there are lots of actions that I know are really appropriate in one context because I've learned that, but are really not appropriate in another context because I've learned that too. So I think what this means is that all of these events which lead to the astonishing behavioral repertoire that humans can perform. I mean, the, the range of things that I can do or that you can do at any one time is staggeringly wide compared to most other animals. But it's all still due to brain activity. And as far as we know, all of that brain activity amounts to chemical and electrical events which obey the laws of physics, which obey natural laws. So there's nothing, there's nothing exceptional. There's nothing, as it were, strange. And in that sense, I think I would definitely like to agree with Helen that we can, we can reject exceptionalist ideas of free will. Instead, I think what we need to do is to account for the, the range and diversity of human action. But we can do that within completely mechanistic conceptions of brain science. Dan, your opening statement, is the denial of free will a mistake? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but I think actually I agree with just about everything that both Patrick and Helen said. 
Um, the big mistake becomes when people confuse control with causation. Yes, everything that happens, everything you do is caused. Uh, uh, determinism is just not the issue. Uh, let's, for the, as it were, to worst case scenario, it, let's suppose that the world really is deterministic. Um, well, then we can't flip coins, can we? Oh, yes, of course we can. And aren't coin flips caused? Yes, they are, like everything else. But they aren't controlled. The thing that coin flips have been designed to be an action with readily observable uh, uh, results, which can make a huge difference to how things go, but they can't be controlled. That's, that's the point of a coin flip. And the same thing is true, interestingly enough, of our brains. Um, uh, people like Patrick do wonderful experiments, but in order to do an experiment, you have to clamp the uncounted millions of degrees of freedom to get the subject to do just one of two things. Then if you establish that sort of control, if you impose that very narrow channel on that brain, then indeed you can sometimes predict up to well, 10 seconds ahead of time, uh, which choice the person will make. Uh, that's interesting, but it doesn't shed any light on the reality of the kind of free will it's worth defending, as Helen says, or worth wanting, as I've said. The kind of free will it's worth wanting is the kind that normal human adults have when they're not being manipulated. And there, there's a real threat facing us right now. Uh, our autonomy has been uh, outstanding up to now, but new techniques, not so much of, of tampering with people's brains, but tampering with their minds, which are their brains, but tampering with them by misinformation and, and uh, uh, subtle disinformation, which tends to turn us into puppets. Uh, where we think we have more control than we do. That is the danger. It's a real danger. But what we have to learn is not that we might as well give up because we don't have free will. What we have to learn is how can I protect the autonomy that I have from those agents, and it's always agents, who want to control me. The weather doesn't want to control me. Gravity doesn't want to control me. They're not agents. Agents are the sources. Agents are controllers. And an autonomous agent is a self-controlled agent. All right, so we seem to have a, a lot of prima facie agreement here. Let's see if we can drill in a little, little more and, and uncover some areas of disagreement. Let's start by talking about the implications of science on this old philosophical question. So we've talked about uh, causality being built right into the methodology, into the, the theory and practice of science. Um, that has long been taken as a threat to the idea of libertarian free will. On top of that, experiments have shown, the Libet experiments for one, that our actions are decided by our brains before we have the conscious experience of deciding to take these actions. So does science, for either of these reasons, tell us that free will is impossible? Can we start with Patrick? Um, Okay, thanks. I can try and answer really two questions there. So um, I think science has made free will pretty replaceable. Uh, I don't know whether it's made it impossible, but it's made it pretty replaceable. So I think one thing that uh, we now understand about the brain, and particularly the cerebral cortex, so the uh, 
part of the brain which is most dramatically uh, enlarged and increased in sophistication in humans is that the our brains give us the capacity for model-based thought. So what does this mean? It means that um, we don't behave in a purely reflexive way or not only in a purely reflexive way. So many animals will respond very elegantly to an immediate stimulus with a stereotyped and very functional response, but they're unable to um, integrate wider information beyond the immediate stimulus. And they're unable to um, respond appropriately to a stimulus that isn't there. And we can do that. So we can, uh, we're able to, for example, remember previous stimuli and predict future situations that might arise. And this is sort of gen the general term model-based thought is given for the, is used for the ability of the human mind and brain to form uh, a simulation of the situation in which it finds itself and to store that uh, model so that it can be used in simulating the likely future consequences of actions. And this just gives an astonishing um, uh, range to human action, which we sometimes think of as freedom or which may appear to be freedom. But really, I think it's indicating the capacity of the brain to understand the situations in which uh, in which we find ourselves. So I would prefer to say that science has replaced free will with the idea of complex models that the mind can form. If I can just carry on for a moment, the second uh, thing you mentioned there was the Libet experiment, and you uh, really mentioned the traditional association of consciousness with free will. Now, traditionally, we think of conscious free will almost as a union of three separate concepts. And uh, in fact, you can separate these things. It's possible that there's free will, but it's not conscious. It's possible that there's conscious will, but it's not free. Uh, you know, you, you might be able to tease those things apart. I think what science has taught us absolutely clearly is that conscious experience is a product of the brain. Conscious experience is the consequence of the neural activity of particular neurons in our brain, not all neurons, some neurons acting together in ensembles in particular ways. So once you accept that consciousness is a product of brain activity, the kinds of results that Benjamin Libet found where the neural preparation for an action begins some second or more before the action itself, but our conscious experience that we're about to act happens much later, almost uh, momentarily, just a couple of hundred milliseconds before we act. That just goes away. That's no longer a surprising finding because you would expect the brain activity to come first and the consciousness second. Once you understand that consciousness is a property of, of, of brain activity, it's not something which is uh, in any way free of brain activity or out there. It's the result of neural firing. So I think science has made uh, free will different and perhaps better understood using other concepts than the traditional concepts that we've perhaps culturally inherited uh, for the notion of free will. Helen, is there anything in that that you can, you can a piece that you want to start with? There is, of course, yes. Um, yeah, so, I, what I would want to dispute is Patrick's claim that it's science um, that gives us this new way of thinking about the relationship between consciousness and freedom. Uh, the way I think of it, we ought always, um, on the basis of the very nature of our experience of action, 
to have known um, that the scenario that the Libet experiment, for example, is is uh, setting up in order to attack, whereby each action is prompted by a conscious prior decision which causes it, we ought always to have known that that's a a crazy conception of action to have. I mean, that the example that I really like to use that I think makes this point well is the example of speaking. I mean, if you think about what I'm doing now, talking to you, um, I mean, I think we think of uh, linguistic activity of this kind as paradigmatic of free action. If anything's a free action, talking is, you know, what I say is something I take responsibility for and um, we hold other agents um, responsible in their turn for, for what they say. Um, but is it the case that each word I say or each sentence or I don't know, it's not even clear what the unit would be. Um, but it's just not the case that each um, bit of uh, linguistic activity I go in for is preceded by some conscious decision to say just that thing. That is not what speaking is like. Uh, and so I think the conclusion that Patrick says is the deliverance of science is actually really the deliverance of uh, careful attention to what actions really are like. Uh, they well up, <laughs> you know, they are embodied um, activities which do indeed stem from um, things like you know, brain activity. I wouldn't want to deny that for a moment. Um, but to suppose that um, showing that action is does not conform to this conscious event followed by uh, movement model uh, is just to show that it doesn't uh, correspond to a caricature of action. Dan, can you start where Helen left off there? Um, let's let's look at the experimental method of science. Um, when scientists do experiments on uh, you know rocks <laughs> or plants, they don't have to tiptoe around in the lab and whisper about what they're doing because rocks and plants can't understand, can't hear what they're saying. Similarly, when they do experiments with animals, uh, since animals can't talk, they don't, <laughs> animals are automatically naive subjects uh, in most circumstances. <clears throat> People, you really have to be careful not to let them know what the point of the experiment is. And the reason for that was actually enunciated many years ago by, uh, in fact, a, a professor at Leeds, where Helen is now, and that's the, the great Donald M. Mackay, one of my heroes, who wrote a paper showing that even in a deterministic universe, a Laplacian demon cannot predict the behavior, and hence cannot control the behavior, of an agent who, with whom it communicates because the agent can take advantage of those communications and can uh, thwart the activities of the experimenter. And so what this shows is that human agents with a capacity for language are uniquely positioned in the whole living world to thwart attempts to control them that either other predators or animals or other, say, human agents. Um, the shepherd and the sheep are fundamentally different in their capacity to anticipate and respond to preemptively the activities of each other. So there is a, it's not exceptionalism. I agree completely with uh, uh, Patrick 
that we don't need any mysterious special ingredient, nothing that is an exemption to the laws of science, uh, the causal laws of science, to still make a distinction between agents that are autonomous in a strong sense, and that's only adult human beings, and that's the only variety of free will that's morally important, and I think Ellen has already said that, I agree. Uh, and it's really only us that have the privilege and the burden of being morally responsible. Could I just come back on that? And um, I'm not saying I disagree, Dan, but I just want to test you a little bit. So the, the, the scenario you describe where two agents capable of linguistic communication interact with each other, and this leads to, to forks in behavior, that sounds to me a lot like uh, game theory. Uh, and it sounds to me a lot like the possibility that from the point of view of one agent, the other agent is simply part of the environment and that you're trying to, uh, for each agent perhaps is trying to control their environment. So that's not particularly human. So there are lots of good ways that game theory has described uh, animal behaviors, including animal communicative behaviors, such as you know, peacock's tails and things like that. So uh, it, I don't see any reason why it's uniquely human yet. Oh, good. But, but, but game theory is exactly to the point. The difference between Robinson Crusoe all alone on an island with no other agents and Robinson Crusoe on an island with another agent is you don't need game theory for the first scenario. You just, you just need expected utility and, and so forth. But game theory comes up whenever you have agents whose interests may not be the same. And one of the key messages coming out of von Neumann and Morgenstern's work is that Agents have got to keep their counsel. They've got to have a poker face. Because if you let the other agent know the workings of your mind, then you're a money pump. <laughs> if we're thinking in economic terms, you are a puppet. And so the principle of protecting your own thinking from yeah. uh, eavesdroppers is absolutely fundamental to the idea of autonomy. And what's happened, I think, is that philosophers, like everybody else for thousands of years, have dimly appreciated the importance of privacy, keeping a poker face. And philosophers have done that usual philosopher thing, and say, well, everyday privacy isn't enough. I want absolute privacy, as Jerry Fodor once memorably said, that even God couldn't tell whether, you know, uh, Adam would take the apple, Eve would take the apple. But no, that's an inflation. We don't need indeterministic choice. We just need choice that is inscrutable to those agents who may wish to control us. Seems like Helen, you had agreed that that indeterministic choice is a straw man. No, nobody seems to be buying that. Can you pick out a no, place? No, I am. No, I you're... am buying okay. that, uh, Mark. I okay. do believe in. I, I'm. I suppose the the thing that's distinctive about my position, uh, in contrast, I think, with that of both Patrick and Dan, is that I'm what philosophers call an incompatibilist. That's to say, I am someone who thinks that free will is incompatible. Um, with determinism, the thesis that philosophers call determinism, that's to say the idea that everything that happens is determined by uh, prior causes. 
Um, so I I do have a different position from uh, from both Dan and and Patrick. I think Dan is a compatibilist, for example. Um, where I share their view is in thinking that uh, free will, even on an incompatibilist conception of it, such as I have, doesn't have to be mysterious or in conflict with science or anything like that. I and mean, the way I think about uh, the power of free will, which I actually give a different name to, I call it agency because I think the, the term free will tends to suggest that free will has to be a rather highfalutin thing, which could not be had by simpler um, agents such as animals. Um, whereas the perspective I want to bring to the free will debate is to say, well, look, mightn't it be that our nature as animals is what, as it were, provides the, the core um, resources that we need in order to have indeterministic free will? That's what I believe is, is the case, that animals are really rather special creatures with special um, biological powers, not mysterious powers, that you know they're, they're powers that we can come to understand um and they do indeed derive from uh, uh, derive from aspects of our materiality of course they don't come from nowhere they're not god given they're, you know we don't have to buy any of this in order to think that incompatibilism might be true and that um the world is not deterministic in part because of the existence of creatures like animals which do have the capacity as i put it to settle things, that's to say, to make the world go one way when it really could have gone another, really could have gone another, um, not just could have gone another in some, you know, uh, relative um, way. So that I, I do think I disagree, both probably, well, certainly with Dan, uh, and probably also with Patrick in thinking that indeterminism is a necessary condition for the free will. But I don't worry about that because I think the world is indeterministic and there's, but there's well, there's no doubt at all that it is. Um, I, well, I, I think was just we're going to say that would be a definite um, point of disagreement. Okay, and I think we're going to have definite opportunities to respond directly to that. Let me just throw in uh, our second official topic here, which is just let's get practical. So let's take your your the, the views that you've been sketching here. Um, our ethical and judicial practices seem to assume that each individual freely chooses their own actions. But if we don't truly have free will, do we need to give up? Do we need to mitigate our notions of innocence and guilt, responsibility and morality? Let's start with Dan on this one. No, we don't. Um, uh, the kind of free will that the law and that our everyday folk understanding of morality presupposes um, is, is a compatibilist notion. We do say it could have done otherwise, but what we mean by that is not something metaphysical, but something very practical. Um, we don't hold very small children uh, morally responsible because in an important sense, they couldn't have done otherwise about things that they will soon be able to do otherwise because they will have acquired the capacity to reflect and anticipate and, and assess the likely effects of their actions and will choose if, if they're, you know, well, well raised and, and are, are, uh, have a good heart and solid citizens, they'll choose a course which, which doesn't cause great harm because they can. Now this 
This is the this is the could have done otherwise of control theory. Has nothing to do with quantum indeterminism. Um, if you <laughs> take two, one of my favorite examples, take two chess playing computers. They're both, let's say, entirely deterministic, but they make use of pseudo random numbers. And if you put two chess playing computers to playing chess against each other, um, thousands of games, <laughs> like uh, uh, DeepMind's uh, uh, Go program, uh, one, one program will win most of the time, maybe all the time. Why did it win? Because it makes better choices. You have to go to that higher level to see. It's not something in the fine-grained molecular structure of the programs. They could be identical. They could be running on the same hardware. It's the fact that one of them makes wiser choices because it makes better use of information. Now, children growing up grow into free will. They don't have morally, morally relevant free will when they're born. Free will is something you grow into. And as Helen says, forget about magical moments when you shazam, you suddenly have free will. It's, it's something that we grow into. It's a competence. It's a set of competences that gradually accrue. And we have sometimes special ceremonies where we say you're now an adult you now have the rights and responsibilities of a responsible adult. And most people make the grade. And there's nothing magical, there's nothing even metaphysical about it. Uh, determinism is simply irrelevant to the question of whether or not that process occurs. It obviously does occur in this world. And that's why when some people writing about free will, they're always trotting out cases of people with brain tumors who go killing people or something like that. Well, yes, of course, those people don't have free will because they don't have the competences, because they have an explicable defect. They can't do otherwise because they're not wired right for doing otherwise. But that doesn't mean you can't be wired right. Most people are wired right. Helen and Patrick, both of you have expressed things about agencies. Which one of you wants to start to point out some point of contrast and comparison with what Dan just said? Uh, well, I can come in on that. Um, Please. I'd like to come in on that. Um, yeah, so I, one thing I agree with um, that Dan has said is that the capacity for morally responsible agency is uh, one that we develop. Uh, it's, you know, it's not some magical thing that we're born with. We have to gradually acquire the capacity uh, for moral responsibility. Where, but where I think I might disagree is that whereas I think Dan wanted to say, you know, we don't really need to do much with our everyday notions of uh, moral legal responsibility, desert, these sorts of things. I actually think that perhaps we do need to do something about those everyday notions not because I think it's impossible for anyone to be morally responsible. I mean, I agree with Dan when he said, you know, some people are wired right. Lots of people are wired right. Uh, that seems to me to be true. But I think there are more people than Dan seems to think that are not, if we might put it that way, wired right. Not because they've got a brain tumor or anything like that, but because certain conditions that 
really ought to have been in place, um, particularly uh, conditions that ought to have been in place when they were very young, uh, you know, the first months and years of life, where, you know, our upbringing prepares us to become members of a moral community. You know, some people aren't fortunate enough to have uh, a kind of upbringing, the kind of introduction to life uh, that enables you to become a fully functioning member of um, that kind of um you know, moral society, because, you know, there can be cases of serious emotional deprivation, lack of love, parents who aren't really interested in you, and who certainly aren't interested in teaching you right from wrong. Those sorts of beginnings are really, really hard to overcome. And there's a way in which the law has to treat it as a kind of, uh, as um, equal before it. Uh, deserving of the same punishment if we commit the same crime. Um, but actually, of course, uh, that's tremendously unfair um, to people in these sorts of invidious starting points that, um, that I've been talking about. So uh, that's, that's, I think, where I might want to disagree a little bit with Dan and say, actually, uh, our conceptions of um, moral responsibility might need a look. Not really because of anything to do with free will as such, um, but because the, the understanding, the greater understanding. Okay, okay. Um, Helen, I, I agree completely with that. I agree that um, our uh, thresholds, our sense of what's normal, what, wh when can people with justice, with mercy be held responsible, these have changed over time and are going to continue to change as we learn more and what's going to keep them in place at a, at a place that we can find consensus on is nothing metaphysical but yeah. a communal understanding of this is not a law i can respect so we should change that or this is a legal practice that is just not credible not respectable uh, and so th this is how the law evolves and this is how folk morality evolves as well we we adopt new standards and we learn it's an empirical process but we always have to have and and i think you said it too we we have to have uh well we have to have something that shifts the burden of proof we have to have clear cases where well of course this person isn't responsible. We don't even have to test them. This person is only two years old. <laughs> Nobody at that age is morally responsible. And at the other end, um, we have people who are, show no signs of any important deficit. Uh, their main problem is that they just were both greedy and made a bad uh, bet on something they thought they could get away with. Uh, could I comment? Because I think I'm going to end up in a very similar place to Helen, but from a slightly different starting point. So I think neuroscience does require us to recast a little bit what responsibility and morality really are. It doesn't throw them out the window, but it encourages encourages us to change our way of thinking about responsibility and morality um, in two ways. So the first one, I mentioned before this idea of model-based thought, that the brain can learn a model of a particular situation and can use it to simulate future behavior. And that's a sort of a neurobiological um, mechanism of, of complex reinforcement learning. 
And I think that we need to see, on the one hand, this neurobiological process, and secondly, a social process, because we're human animals, by which uh, our models get transferred from one person to another. So part of, I think, what happens in childhood, and it's interesting that we don't really remember it, is that the set of people who look after us transfer their model-based thought into our brains. And I think this process of uh, um, spreading model-based thinking to produce societal consensus is, is a large part of what human societies do. What that means is that we end up with most people having models which are in broad agreement with each other in their heads. They're not necessarily in total agreement. We don't need to have total conformity. And in fact, we shouldn't. It's not good for the health of society to have uh, total uniformity. But our social um, and cultural practices allow the transfer of model-based thought from one brain to another. Now, that's quite interesting because once everybody has got the same model-based thought, you might, for example, have a society where um, a piece of private property might be respected rather than stolen, right? So you can get various things which we think of as being moral behavior just as a, uh, an aspect of brain learning about what should a particular agent do in this particular situation. Now, there's one thing I think that follows from that, which is really important, which is it's only going to work if everybody in society has the chance to receive the learning signals to develop the model-based thought and get it into their brains. It's maybe a little bit scary, the idea that uh, um, somehow there's a societal process which gives us alignment on our thinking. But maybe even if it's a bit scary, it's okay as long as everybody has the chance to go through that process. And I think I'd agree with Helen that we need to have what you might call equal opportunity for learning or equal opportunity for moral learning in order to have responsibility and morality in the way that, for example, our legal systems assume it. I think that's really important. Everybody needs to be using the same general class of model-based thoughts for moral societies to work. But, but hang on, Patrick. Um, uh, we're all, for the moment, falling into the uh, sort of universalist trap. Um, yeah. <laughs> Joe Henrik's new book called The Weirdest People in the World, which I just reviewed for the New York Times, argues that, in fact, this equal opportunity that you talk about, I entirely agree with, with the general thrust of your remarks. But I think the idea that it's going to be uniform around the world is just wrong. I mean, it, it, we can get there, maybe, but we ha shouldn't underestimate how different the cultural, the enculturation of different peoples are. And this is where we create a lot of, of really tough cases uh, for, for ethics, morality. I mean, we can highlight that by saying, look, um, I'm very sure that the, the inhabitants of the Andaman Islands in the Indian Ocean um, treat their children in ways that if they were doing that in Ohio, we'd put them in jail. And there would be general agreement. But that doesn't mean that they're living a different life, and we can't just impose our 
culture on them uh, without making a lot of allowances and adjustments. I, I don't so, think so I said I don't think I said we should or that or indeed that we could. So I think first of all, uh, when I talked about equal opportunity, I wasn't I meant specifically equal opportunity to receive the learning signals that you need to have from society to align your models in your brain with the models in 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 the brains of the other people in society. So that was a specific sense of learning opportunity of equal opportunity that I meant. Secondly, of course, there are multiple different societies and it's striking that they have, uh, they have different legal systems. I think that's uh, very, very clear. And in the course of uh, human uh, development, cultures have evolved with distinct cultural um, flavors and cultural practices and cultural moralities. I don't wish to comment on that. Uh, I think what I would like to say is I'm, if you like, more interested in what we share than in what um, uh, makes us differ. And I think the neurobiological hardware is uh, for supporting model-based thought and social learning. That seems to be pretty much universal. Yeah. The particular yeah. cultural forking of cultural paths, that leads to differences between societies. I think we're, we're onto something interesting here in terms of agency. Um, Helen, can you say a little more about the, you know, what you were saying before about animals having agency? Uh, you know, it seems to be a point of potential disagreement with the way that uh, Dan and Patrick are talking about this. Can you say a little more about sort of the, the metaphysical slash social implications of your view of agency here? Sure, yeah. So, uh, as I said before, um, I use this term agency sort of deliberately um, because I think it captures something that's terribly important to uh, our self-conception. We, we have to think of ourselves as agents. We have to think of ourselves as creatures that can um, intervene in the world in ways which we determine, you know, in ways which are up to us. Um, I also think it's part and parcel of the concept of agency that we are settlers of things. Uh, I, I briefly re referred earlier to this idea of settling, the idea that uh, when we act, we make the world go one way when it could have gone another. Um, in what my version uh, of that thought is an indeterministic one. It requires for it to be genuinely possible for the world to go in each of, well, not just two directions, one of many possible directions at the point at which we act and what we do with our action is ensure that just one of those um, tracks is the one that the world follows. And, and my sorry, view is, there, is, is there, sorry. sorry, is there room in that for consideration of the kind that uh, Daniel was talking about of you know, your, your cross-control comparisons and just to, to touch on this particular exchange that they were just having? Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't. I haven't realised you'd wanted you'd wanted me to, to to tie right back to that. Um, I suppose on the cross-cultural question, I mean, I, it, it, I don't think there is much of a connection actually with the idea of agency. In that, um, the way I think of the topics of uh, free will on the one hand, moral responsibility on the other, I do think they're best dealt with separately. I think free will is a necessary condition for moral responsibility, uh, but certainly nothing like a sufficient one. That's the question that Dan raised of cross-cultural difference. Of course, there are such enormous cross-cultural differences, particularly if you look across time as well as across space. I mean, the numbers of social systems and moral codes that there have been are, are phenomenal. Uh, and as Dan pointed out, many of them would be uh, systems that we would think of with, with utter horror um, today. 
Um, what I suppose I had in mind when I was talking about the need in order to become a morally responsible agent was something a little bit different from what Patrick had in mind there when he talked about um, model-based thought. Um, I don't think it's just a matter of sort of getting into your head the model that, you know, the, the model of uh, social norms or whatever, um, but the society in which you operate um, uses. I don't think it's just a matter of finding out what that is and getting the model into your head. Um, I was thinking more that a lot of what uh, goes on in morality has to do with our concerns, our concern for others. And that that's something that can only develop um, from a situation in which a child feels loved, cared for, uh, can develop good relationships with its caregivers. Uh, and from there, a child can go on to develop good relationships with others in the world and come to care about them. And I think if you don't have that start, you don't get anywhere. Right? You really don't get anywhere. Um, and I think if you do have that start, on the other hand, you can move between cultures in sort of sensitive ways. You know, you can think to yourself, well, yes, um, these guys in the Andaman Islands are doing this stuff, uh, which perhaps, you know, we don't do back home. Um, nevertheless, I can form uh, an appreciation of why they're doing it the way they do, maybe. I can fit it into a broader context. I can make sense of it as a human being. I can maybe even, you know, be talked round into some of these practices, um, given an understanding of where they're coming from. I mean, sometimes perhaps that won't be possible. You know, sometimes I will just be holding up my hands in horror, throwing up my hands in horror rather, um, and saying, you know, there's just no way they should be doing those things. Um, but I think the the emotional basics have to be in place um, in order to be able to develop any conception of uh, moral responsibility that can you know that can really ground um, concepts like desert, um, for example. Thank you, Helen, Dan, Patrick. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.